Welcome to the Black Theatre History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theater's African-American history makers. I'm KB Sane. Today's interview is with the insanely talented playwright and generally delightful human, Chisa Hutchinson. Chisa is brilliant and quirky and fun, and when putting together this introduction, I couldn't think of a better way to articulate who she really is than to share her own bio in her own words. For the sake of time and brevity, I've only included select company credits. The full bio can be found at chisahutchinson.com. Chisa was born in Queens, New York to young, irresponsible parents. She spent the majority of her formative years under the care of a much more responsible but chronically broke woman who was technically her godfather's mother, but who would later, in the fine, it takes a village tradition of the broken family, simply become Ma. Chisa grew up in the company of what seemed like hundreds of unofficially adopted brothers and sisters in Newark, New Jersey, where she excelled in school and philosophized with cockroaches about the ultimate merits of poverty. Her favorite six-legged pest, who called himself Swifty on account of his uncanny ability to elude the bottom of any shoe, once told her with a wistful chuckle, one day you'll be able to look back and romanticize all this shit. That day appeared on the horizon of Chisa's future when, at 14, she got a scholarship to what she thought was a boarding school. It turns out, however, that having more than one building, indeed, having a campus, does not a boarding school make. Chisa was naive and probably should have read the brochures more carefully. So, she moved about 10 miles in a whole galaxy away from Newark to Short Hills to live with a host family comprised of a quirky Buddhist psychologist, her then-husband, a then-a-nature-loving, piano-playing Jew, their three kids, and an ancient-dogged baboo. It was a rough transition, but one which has, nevertheless, shaped Chisa and her writing for the better. Probably. A couple more awesome supportive parents and several scholarships later, Chisa has earned a BA in Dramatic Arts from Vassar College and an MFA in Playwriting from NYU. She's landed some pretty cool gigs since then, such as writing and performing with the New York Neo-Futurists and being a staff writer for Blue Man Group. As she tends to write plays about underrepresented folks that require a minimum of five actors, she doubts very much that you'll see any of her plays on Broadway anytime soon, but encourages you to support the intrepid companies that have presented her work, which include the Lark Play Development Center, City Park Summer Stage, the New York Neo-Futurists, Partial Comfort, Mad Dog Productions, Atlantic Theatre Company, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, New Dramatists, Rattlestick Theatre, the Contemporary American Theatre Festival, National Black Theatre, Second Stage Theatre, Delaware Rep, Primary Stages, South Coast Rep, King Company, and Alley Theatre. It's because of Chisa's work with the Contemporary American Theatre Festival, which is housed at my work home on Shepherd University's campus, that I was able to catch up with Chisa in my office while she was on a break from rehearsals for Whitelisted. Um, so I kind of want to just dive in and start in the same place that I start with a lot of people, although I feel like you've been pretty forthcoming about this, so I'm just going to lob it out there um, and see if, if anything new comes up. But I usually ask folks to talk about their origins as a theater maker. So like who their initial influences were, 
uh, who the folks were that kind of brought them up, like on whose shoulders they stand, that sort of thing. Um, you've talked a lot in other places about your high school experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I will just <laughs> let the internet know that like that is pretty well documented <laughs> in other places. Um, and that you did go on scholarship to a private school, yeah. um, which was not in the same community that you were raised. <laughs> and so I know you had a high school teacher there. Yeah. Mr. Somebody. Mr. Pridham. Um, so dope. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I'm particularly curious about the relationship that you had with him because I either heard an interview or read somewhere that he took you to the Wilson Brewstein oh, yeah, town hall. Debate. Yeah. How, uh, I have to know how, like, what grade you were in. Okay, how he I was took like you... in the 10th grade or something. I want to say I was like 15 or 16. And, um, yeah, and it was just me. He just took me, which was um, interesting. I think it was because I had expressed an interest in writing plays, mostly because, like, it, it was, like, me and maybe, like, two other black girls in the class who were all, like, fighting over the Beneath the Monologue from Raising in the Sun because <laughs> there really wasn't much material for us. So I just started writing my own stuff. And mm -hmm. I think he was like, oh, okay, I know, I know something you might be interested in. And he took me to see... August Wilson debate Robert Brewstein on the issue of colorblind casting. Mm -hmm. And I... Mm. <laughs> was, was that even something... Because had someone shared that with me in 10th grade, I don't... I mean, I might be on the same path, but I, what? how did that impact you? Like, had you even thought about colorblind casting? Were you exposed to that because of the type of school oh, yeah, you were yeah, yeah. in? I mean, or, I got, and bless Mr. Pridham, I <laughs> I was like the 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 pet of <laughs> of my class. Like I was like Mr. Pridham's like favorite student. I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. Um, and he cast me in like everything in roles that I had absolutely no business playing. Um, my favorite. So I got. Um, I was cast as a beauty queen contestant in The Real Queen of Hearts Ain't Even Pretty or something. It was like about the like white Southern girl teenagers <laughs> back in the 60s or so. You know, like okay. I, I had no business playing. Like historically out. incorrect. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll just go ahead and erase, <laughs> you know, the racial history of this country. Um, or like Antigone. I was like the only black person in the entire cast that was supposed to be all like related to each other. I mean if you want to be like really literal about it right mm -hmm. um but of course it was like oh political statement Antigone as the black sheep haha -ha, right like mm -hmm. kind of thing which but that's not it's not, colorblind yeah, in that way yeah it's not um he also cast a lot to put as, on a high school kid yeah <laughs> as um talk radio um what's the talk radio Eric Bogosian's play. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was cast as Barry Champlain. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> nah. So if that gives you any sense of like where I was as far as like, okay, yeah, these are interesting challenges, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but oof, man, is it unfair to ask, um, I think, a, a young black girl from North New Jersey to like play a middle-aged Jewish shock jock, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, so, um, 
Yeah, when I when I uh, heard this debate and I heard, um, you know, Bruce Dean, I heard him, you know, well, act, it's acting, right? Like, we ought to be able to... We're in that conversation still, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. We ought to be able to just play whatever role, you know, whatever role um, our spirit can, can sink into kind of a thing. And I'm like, yeah, all right, that's cool, that's cool, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. August Wilson, however, Mm -hmm. was like, yeah, that's just lazy. And that's just like an excuse to not tell stories that are actually about people of color. What you need to do, if you want to employ actors of color, like in a full and meaningful way, is put on plays that (laughs) are written by people of color, for people of color, about people of color, like... Mm -hmm that's what you need to be doing because this whole like well our stories are are you know universal and Mm -hmm. you know our stories are human stories you know and then sort of just shoehorning black and brown people into those into those roles that's telling us that like our stories the, the stories about black people the stories about asian people the stories about latino people you know like the the stories about us that they're not human human right. that they're not universal that they're some sort of weird subsect yes. <laughs> you know i'm not gonna ask the like did that have an impact on you because like i can't fathom being in wilson's presence while he like literally just tells white america to fuck themselves <laughs> like that you that it wouldn't have an impact on you but i'm wondering uh if at that age any of that carried into your sense of self as an artist or your sense of... Like, I mean, cl- Did you consider yourself a I writer then? Uh, yeah, yes, question mark. I mean, I really only ever... I mean, having grown up, like, super poor, <laughs> I didn't have... Words were about the most valuable thing I mm-hmm, had, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know... <laughs> yeah, I mean, writing... I was always writing something. Like, even when I had never even seen a theater production... You know, I was writing short stories, but they were like 85% dialogue, you know? (laughs) So by the time I got to high school, I was like, oh, oh shit, this is what I've been writing. I've been writing plays. I should just be like, you know, that's dialogue. That's just, you know. How did that understanding of like writing, how did that translate into your undergrad experience? Which was Vassar? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... I went to Vassar thinking that I was either going to be an English major mm-hmm. or I was <laughs> the practical side of me was very resistant to the idea of majoring in theater <laughs> for reasons that I think um, dear listener will understand. Um, so, yeah, I was like, well, maybe maybe psychology. And actually, my psychology classes wound up being like hella interesting and very useful. I was getting dramaturgical. Fire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the psychology major was not that uh, that wasn't gonna happen, <laughs> or English. But English, oh gosh, they were they were like, oh, you need to take these fifty, you know, <laughs> required foundational courses for. And I was like, I ah, fuck that. I'll, I'll just I'll major in theater with a concentration in playwriting, so I get to take all the cool English classes, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all the creative writing classes over in that department. But, you know, without all the, like, medieval lit, Jane Austen, you know, like, I went in thinking anything but theater. And then I was like, ah, well, fuck it. I guess, you know, I'm not really, I'm not particularly good at anything else. So, 
Yeah, I just was like, all right, I'm going to have to make this shit work. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, not much. I didn't, I didn't really, if I'm being honest, learn much about um, playwriting. I had a great time, though, doing independent study. I mostly, like, went over to the Africana Studies Department to learn about <laughs> black playwrights, mm-hmm. um, to learn what they were doing, what they were up to. Oh, you mean there are more than August Wilson and Lorraine Hansberry? Uh, but, cool. But right? <laughs> like, yeah. Do you, who did you learn? Is there anyone that really stuck with you that, like... Yeah, impacted um, who you are as a writer. I read. She turned me on. To, this was uh, Dr. Constance Berkeley was her name, um, and she was just so generous. She didn't have to, you know. But you know, when I went over and <laughs> said, "Hey, can you just <laughs> right point me in the direction of what what plays I should be reading?" She's like, "Oh, sure. Here's some Pearl Clay. Mm-hmm. Here's some Alice Childress." Here's some Ntozaki Shang. Here's some. Uh, did you know that Langston Hughes also wrote a play mm-hmm. and not just, um, you know, and that he collaborated with uh, Zora Neale Hurston mm-hmm. on a, you know, I mean, he, she was just like, oh, yeah, here you go. You know? Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. Oh, and there's this new, this upstart play, right? Susan Laurie Parks. <laughs> She's doing some interesting things. And I was like, cool. Nom, 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 you know? Right. Um, yeah, and then um, and then the internet happened, and I was able to like search <laughs> black playwrights. That's how I found out about Lynn Nottage, and I became obsessed with Lynn Nottage. <laughs> um, I read. Uh, what was the first play of hers that you Intimate read? Intimate Apparel, mm. and I just about died died at like the perfection of it you know intimate apparel crumbs from the table of the joy i read Mm -hmm. um yeah i just and then um right around then because i was i was teaching english um at a private school in california at the Mm -hmm. time and there were just a lot of things that were happening in that moment um i was learning about all these like black playwrights i was like they're out there Um, just totally voraciously reading all the things and then um and then uh right uh, I also got a uh, a, a reading of a she like girls mm-hmm. um which is my first like full-length play that actually got out and into was the that world. at the lark that was at the lark I just want to celebrate that whole history yeah. <laughs> I love me some lark man I miss that place so mm-hmm. bad um I was so heartbroken, just devastated. It was my first artistic home. They uh, did a reading of She Like Girls for their Playwrights Week, which back in the day was like American Idol for playwrights. You Mm -hmm. know, like you go there, people know to go there. You know, producers knew, right? Like this is where you go to find the next hot play, right? So, um, yeah, I got my first production out of that reading. Um, what else? They were the ones who introduced me to Tina Howe and Tina and Howe. she was the one that told you to go to grad school, yes? Yeah. So that's all the fast forward to get to NYU, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Where Richard Wesley was one of you? Richard Wesley was one of my, he's still, we still keep in touch. He's so, oh, I just love him. He just is one of the most giving mentors, you know? Like, I'm, I really want to know about his teaching style. Like, I. He actually, the, he technically wasn't. I mean, he was my professor, but he was more, the class that he taught was more of a, um, 
like he would bring in guests. Mm-hmm. It was like the professional colloquium, I think it was, it was it. called. So it was like, I'm just going to keep bringing, I'm going to bring, we're good. today I'm bringing in agents and they're going to talk about, you know, what they do and what you can do to get their attention. Were you at Tish? And Yeah. Okay. Um, and next week I'll bring in, you know, producers, mm-hmm. you know, some producers. And then the following week, maybe some designers and they can tell you about how to collaborate with them. You know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was just more about um, he wasn't necessarily up there lecturing or anything like that. It was just more like, here, I'm just going to connect you um, with these folks. I'm just going to curate an experience for you so that you have an idea of what it's going to be like when you get out and um, start working. I mean, that's the foundation of the industry. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was pretty cool. Did he and, ever come in on your writing? Did he? Was he, like, aware of what you were doing? Really. I mean, yes, but mostly I think because I had applied for um, the Goldberg, which is, like, the big playwriting prize there. Um, yeah, but I don't think, yeah, like, he didn't teach my actual writing class. Right. Um, that was Rena Groff. I was who, just going to ask. Oh, my God. God, I'm just <laughs> like, I, man, I know some really dope ass people. Um, Rena Graf is so fucking cool. Like, she just, ah, uh, she makes so much sense to me as mm-hmm. a, um, as an artist. Like, her work makes sense to me, but then mm. the way she talks about your work and the way she, um, interprets and um breaks down other people's work just makes so much sense to me that i i i I just have such an appreciation for her brain and for the way that she um communicates you know expresses thoughts about Mm -hmm. art um because not many people you know how there are some people who are you know they're brilliant but they're not terribly good at you know communicate <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling a little bit seen i don't want to call myself brilliant but i do stumble on my words all the time <laughs> yeah or just you know yes. people who you can tell that they are um deeply engaged with the thing but they cannot for the life of them um articulate whatever it is that is you know she's mm-hmm. not that person like she just mm. and in an instant she can she can put her finger exactly on whatever it is that is confusing her, that is bothering her, that is exciting her, that is, you know, um, she can, she can just like extract whatever element it is Mm -hmm. that's like causing the effect. And it's just, (laughs) but yeah, I loved her. Um, Janet Nypris also, Mm -hmm. um, she taught uh, my playwriting class and she also has a way of, She has a very sort of flat-footed presentation about stuff. Like she just doesn't, she doesn't sugarcoat shit. Mm-hmm. And she, she will tell you in a minute. Like, look, we're on page twenty-six here, and I haven't seen uh, hide nor hair of a problem. Like, I'm gonna need you to like, <laughs> like get in there and create some complications. Okay, you know, like she's very, sort of, very sort of um, ham-fisted. <laughs> Which also I very I, I appreciate it. Um, who else did I have? Uh, Daniel Goldfarb, who also was mm-hmm. cool, but I feel like um, he, you know, maybe responded a little more favorably to uh, the white boy narratives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I felt a little bit like I'll just admire you from over here, <laughs> from my black girl corner. 
So senior year, final year, end of grad school, Mm -hmm. internship time. Internship time. And I have Diana San teaching my master class. Which I just can't. Who, I know, I can't stand it. That woman, hmm, she's perfection. Um, And just so warm and so like, okay. I've had such great mentors. Okay. (laughs) So uh, she is best friends. With Lynn Nottage, they live literally, like, around the corner from each other in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, their kids were, like, growing up together and shit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, that kind of relationship. And she talked about this, and I remember her talking about it in the master class, and, and being like, oh, my God, Lynn Nottage. Like, I am one degree separated from Lynn Nottage right now. And um, so she was, like, uh, really just open and sweet when I approached her all sheepish, being like, so... Um, I have to do an internship <laughs> for, right. for, you know, my, my, my classwork. And, um, instead of just going to some company that may or may not, you know, like yeah. whatever. Making copies of drums is Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm like, I don't want to do that. So I, I would much rather, um, follow around a playwright that I respect and just like see how they live and see how they do what they do. You know, like that would be educational for me. So do you think Lynn, would, and I was so hoping that she didn't feel offended that I didn't ask her. So um, I was like, yeah, you think Lynn would be interested in, in having um, an intern or like an assistant for a semester? And she was like, I gotta ask. And she did. And I, I met Lynn Nottage. <laughs> like we had um, lunch or something um, in Brooklyn. I met her out there. And um, yeah, then uh, she won her Pulitzer for Ruined. And mm-hmm. um became like the busiest woman ever (laughs) so she really didn't need the help um one of the things that i uh read or heard you talk about um that you did with her was uh to make crumbs into a radio play yeah can you so i'm saying that as a segue into the work that you've done for audible and the work that you've done for podcast and or radio sense um I'm curious what that experience was working with I think it's very different when you're working with someone else's text which is what I'm really asking especially if it's like your shiro and (laughs) what was no pressure (laughs) what was that what was that like and or what did you take from that experience that then helped you when you moved forward with your own work yeah I mean I just I really just tried to approach it like um it felt a little uh algebraic or something Mm -hmm. you know it was like okay (laughs) this play minus visuals equals x solve for x right Mm -hmm. kind of thing um so i really just had to think in terms of all right if you were just absorbing this narrative through your ear um what information would you need to know Mm -hmm. how can i communicate that without you know you're seeing it on stage, you know, I mean, it was just a really, so did it you felt have, very technical. I tried to approach it from a very technical. Did you like read it all to yourself or did you have other people reading it with you to hear? Oh, no, no, it was just me. <laughs> it was just me. I've, I've gotten, I mean, as a writer, I've gotten, I think, pretty good at hearing many, many voices in my head. <laughs> I, I do understand. <laughs> as a director, I hear many, many voices. Yes, in my head. I'm sure. Oh, so, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's never really been a, uh, a problem, um, just hearing voices. I mean, it helps, 
certainly when you mm -hmm. hear a play being read by professional actors for the first time, you're like, oh, cool. Um, it's a whole other dimension, but um, yeah, but I have a, I think a pretty good ear. How does that translate into the work that you write for? That's so funny. I'm going to say the word audible again, but I mean for like the audible experience and like shout out because I know that this podcast is distributed through audible and should any of their people be listening? Like I actually subscribed to audible because of the Minetta Lane series, like because mm -hmm. it, and you were the first class of that, I think mm -hmm. like, um, and I was like, yeah, all right, I'll fine. Now that you have plays, I'll do this. Right. Um, but I, there was an event that CATF held that was a bit of a listening party for another piece that you've written. That was yeah. a radio play. And I, um, I remember you and Peggy McCowan speaking and you saying that you don't care for podcasts and that you don't care for like that auditory experience, which I find fascinating because it feels like you've been doing some of that work dotted yeah, throughout your career. I have. And I, I, it's so funny because I keep getting asked to, <laughs> to do things that are like, out of my comfort zone mm -hmm. and I'm like well whatever it's like against my religion to say no to work so whatever I'll do it but um I approach it as a challenge definitely mm -hmm. you know it's not just uh oh yeah let's have a fun writing a play it's okay shit now how can I make an audio play experience for to interest even someone like me mm. right who it's not that I don't care for audio. I have tried so hard to listen to so many podcasts and um, other, you know, radio plays. And, and I just, I don't have that. I have to be doing something else while I'm doing thing. it. I cannot, for the life of me, process just through my ears. Mm -hmm. I have a really difficult time with that, um, processing orally. So I had to figure out, okay, well... <laughs> How can I hold the attention of <laughs> someone even like me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how, um, yeah. So what I do is I just try to create an actual play. It's not a direct address. Mm. It's not like, you know, most plays are just like stand-up comedy routines without the comedy, right? So, But, um, but yeah, so... Proof of Love... Right. It is a long stand-up. It's not, though. Well, it, because it's not direct address. It's not um, oh, the actor talking, talking to, to the, the audience. audience about, oh, you know, when I was growing up, my mom... No, you get to have mom. that other... And I'm saying right. character in air quotes for those who are listening and don't know the piece, but, like, the, that other character... Is her is, husband. Is there with, with her. Yeah. And he's in a coma, right? So mm -hmm. I cheated a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do now see the the real difference um, because, yeah, having someone talk to you mm -hmm. without seeing them is weird. <laughs> Whereas, I don't know, if you mm -hmm. are just a fly on you're the witnessing wall it. Mm -hmm. of this space, um, and this is where, like, sound effects, we had a really mm -hmm. awesome sound guy, um, but this is where, like, sound effects and things come in handy because it helps to create... The physical space where the play is happening right mm -hmm. so you know the hospital beeps mm -hmm. you know the nurses announcements in the background um when her phone rings or whatever mm -hmm. you know those those things sort of jolt you the listener into the it keeps you in the space in the like it mm -hmm. yanks you into the the actual um space where the play is taking 
place. And um, yeah, I think I, I like that approach. <laughs> like I, it works for me. It's um, I've done. I'm working on my third such play now because <laughs> I just keep getting. <laughs> Work is good. Work we is celebrate good. Like, work. You know, it's cool. I like it. It's cool. Um, it's, but I just find it funny because I really, I don't, um, I still feel so guilty for like not listening to to audio plays and podcasts and things. I'm like, well, I'll, but I'll keep writing them, I guess, if people keep finding them interesting. <laughs> I, I would suggest that it's just a vehicle for sharing the same information. Yeah. Yeah. In that way. Well, so then let's transition to like things that are wholly realized um, because we're here in my office <laughs> because I have this luxury of you being at Shepherd University for a Contemporary American Theater Festival because of Whitelisted yeah. which uh, is a play that I feel like everybody uh, everybody regardless of who they are um, <laughs> you are probably in this story somewhere <laughs> um, but it's so visual, yeah, and so subtly spectacular. <laughs> I'm I'm wondering about the the joy that probably comes from this, but like the real difference mm -hmm. in the process for you as a writer, because, and I'm certain that I haven't read every single thing that you've written, but I've read a number of your works, and this feels to me like the most visually realize that there are things mm. that you have to see happen. Yes. yes. Um, Although, believe it or not, there's going to be a radio adaptation of Whitelisted also. Really? Oh, I'm so curious. Yeah. Whoever's doing that, I'm so sorry. I just said all the things that I've said. But, <laughs> but I think that, well, directorially, from, from my reading, that piece is so exciting because... Of all the crazy shit. I don't, I don't want to say it. any of them. <laughs> <laughs> There's some crazy shit. And, and you have right? a phenomenal props artisan working on making some of these yes. things happen. And so, like, some of it is, I'm, and I'm sorry to the audience that's like, what are they talking about? Y'all are just going to have to, like, find and read this play and or go see it. Um, but what is what is it in your brain um, that allows you to write something that you don't know how it'll happen? Oh, yeah. I just Like, don't... I feel like that's a skill. It is. Maybe. I don't know. It's either that or I'm just really lazy. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not lazy. Because no, when true. I was working on the play, I did it. Um, I worked on it in several places. So I worked at it at primary stages. I was in, mm -hmm. I'm in their uh, writers group there um, and at New Dramatist where um, oh, I'm just like wrapping up my residency there, which is so sad. Um, but what they did that was really helpful because um, I was cranking out the pages and I would, you know, bring in the pages. The actors would read the pages, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I would go home and write more pages. And I remember going home to write some pages. And there's one part. I, I can give this one away because I, I, I think it's fine. But, like, um, there's one part I got to where I was like... It would be really cool if, like, the cell phone just fucking melted. That's in exactly head. what I was thinking about when I was talking about, I was like, like your yeah. Pop. I just, I just want the cell phone to like melt in her hand while she's trying to speak on it. And um, I wonder if there's a way to. So I took to Facebook because you know, theater, which you do often, theater community. Like, I have a really robust um, <laughs> Facebook 
face face hive, right? So um, I'm on there a lot just asking folks, hey, um, does anybody know <laughs> how I can do this thing? Or does anybody have any connection to this kind of a person or whatever? So I went on and asked about this thing. Hey, theater props people, you know, how how can I make a cell phone melt in someone's hand? And, you know, people are there, like, offering up all kinds of, like, solutions and things, which is so, so awesome. But amongst them was Emily Morris, who is the artistic director at New Dramatists. Mm-hmm. And she, she has such a habit of doing this, and it cracks me up. She just sort of, like pops on to people's threads whenever they ask a question and is like here let me just offer this very helpful tidbit right and she was like so you know we can invite um a props master into your uh into your workshop process right and i was like oh yeah what a a gift (laughs) oh cool let's do that so we did (laughs) um and i got to and i actually did get to think about you know, whether or not a thing was possible. But okay. generally, when I write stuff like this, I don't think about that. Like, and I, I really try not to think about what is or isn't possible because it's fucking theater. First of all, everything yes. is possible, yes. right? Um, and second, that's not my job. <laughs> there, there is that. And I have, I, have, I have also had playwriting instructors that are like, no, that's not for you to think, like, that yell at me to job. get out of my director head, that's right? That's like, like director, someone else will figure designers, that out. Mm-hmm. That's y'all. That's, that's that's all you have at it. Have fun, you know. Um, do you ever put if... Do you ever put something on the page and then like laugh at the absurdity of it and then keep going? I usually laugh at it after. <laughs> I have a director friend who um, <laughs> I love working with, but I'll send her like raw pages. So I'll send her like the first draft of a thing, and she she always says, yeah, whenever I sit down to read a play of yours, I'm like just waiting for the impossible stage direction. And it's not until after she says, so you know on page 11 you have this thing that's supposed to happen and like you do realize that that's not as simple as you're probably thinking it is or like that that's going to cost like $10,000 to make try to make that happen like for real. And I was like, yeah, you, but you love me, right? <laughs> I also want to say on the converse that this is theater, right? And we we can make anything happen. If we, we can. And so I don't want to like demean that, but I, you know, you, I said, I've told you this before that um, those moments where you get to the surreal or the paranormal are particularly fun. And I find mm-hmm. them really juicy across plays. And so I don't want to demean the like, Dear listeners, you should definitely write whatever it is that you envision and we will figure it out. But I'm I'm curious just because this um waitlisted particularly has a lot. Is is the cell phone the thing that you think is the most complicated? No. Okay. <laughs> no. So I want to move away from that though, because I really don't want to give away any spoilers. Um, but it is spectacular. And will be spectacular, and I cannot I'm wait to so see it realized. Excited because, and look, I'm very lucky that the premiere has landed here at CATF because they are really dedicated and really determined to find a way to, like, really stick to stick very strictly to whatever it is that I put on the page, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I very much appreciate that. Through conversations that I've had with, you know, directors that are, you know, who've done readings of the play or producers or who, you know, 
um, through conversations that I've had with them, I also have come to value thinking about how to, okay, I have this crazy, impossible physical thing, have visual thing happening, right? What is the intended effect of that thing? Mm. So I really have to think about that because there are, hopefully will be other productions of this play mm-hmm. that land at smaller theater companies mm-hmm. or, you know, theater companies with maybe not as many resources available to them, and um, but who nevertheless are really excited about the story and want to tell it, right? And so I have to think about, and I, I do this, I put little footnotes in sometimes. And your, and your stage directions, like, I feel like this is a, a segue too because there are moments where you're like or maybe this yeah yeah i just try to offer up alternatives Mm -hmm. to be like hey y'all like i'm really i am open to this crazy thing not being exactly this crazy thing Mm -hmm. right um as long as it achieves some reasonable approximation right Mm -hmm. of the effect the intended effect right if the intended effect here is to um, disorient the audience and you know forge a bond uh, an unexpected bond of empathy with this character or mm-hmm. whatever it is right like is there some other perhaps less crazy less expensive thing <laughs> right that you can do to achieve that same effect right and I I try to remain open to that because theater is collaborative also right mm-hmm. and sometimes I mean, sometimes the the substitute can be even more exciting or, you know, more because it's surprising or unexpected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or just creative, creative as fuck, right? right? And I think I really appreciate that too, that sort of underdog storyteller, you know, <laughs> that well, like scrappy someone... storyteller mentality that like theater artists know about, man. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what we do. Can we talk for a moment about the way that you communicate those things? You mentioned your footnotes. I mentioned your stage directions. Um, I will say that as a, and it's probably because as a director, I like when a playwright is either like, yo, this is what I want, or gives me permission to play. Mm -hmm. But you have a conversation with your readers on the page. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know it's intentional. It, it has, it, frankly, before I ever was even introduced to you, I felt like I knew you because your tone is so clear when, when you are read. And so I'm wondering, you know, is that just something that you're like, no, this is who I am. This is what I want. Blah, blah, blah. Come at me. <laughs> or, you know, or, or is it like a deliberate choice? Like how does, how did that develop for you? Um, because it's conversational. Yeah. It's mostly just me, again, like, even from the very beginning, I was, I've always been more interested in dialogue, right, Mm -hmm. and the interactions between, we've already established (laughs) that, right, so... The transition to play, like, uh, when I was writing short stories, I was never one to be like, and now I will spend 10 pages describing the environs, right? (laughs) Like, that's, like, not really what I'm interested in, right? Like, the people. Let's get Mm -hmm. the people interacting and talking and all that, right? So, um, plays, yeah, natural, right? Natural fit. Howsomever, there are those pesky stage directions that are in there, which, first of all, Again, like, I have not suddenly developed uh, a a taste for describing 
what books are on the shelves and whatever mm-hmm. all right like that's not I'm now still not interested in that right no but, but also if your characters are well developed your scenic whoever's yeah. set, dressing the set is yeah, going to yeah, know yeah. what books to that's, put on that's, <laughs> again that's not my job mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um but uh so well rather so when i include a stage direction it is generally important um or it yes. um it is a thing that needs to be done. I've been told that there are uh, schools, theater schools mm-hmm. out there that instruct their directing students to disregard the stage directions. I was taught you could wipe them out. <sighs> and and I feel like that came... This is not the subject at hand, and please forgive me, but I feel like that also came from a generation or an era where the stage directions were the stage managers. Right, right. And not the playwrights. Which and, I get. And well, I felt like in the that now. 80s and 90s <laughs> that started to shift. And then I felt like in this century, there are quite a few playwrights that are in conversation with yeah. us. And I I feel like you could, I, a good director, I think, can tell the difference. Yeah, because, I mean, the yes, the playwrights, <laughs> we're all like, sweet baby Jesus, do not disregard my stage directions. Oh. Because if I'm including it, it's important, right? Yeah. Um, so, well, and also when your voice is clear saying it, as as the writer, it's kind of like, oh, also, dear reader, you could do this or you could do that. I, I feel like that doesn't let the director off the hook. I feel like that doesn't let the actors off the hook because it's so clearly you, mm. the living, breathing human who might show up at the show uh, and yeah, will yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. But yeah, that's really just me trying to like make it as... Uh, Re- e- reading the stage directions even um, as engaging as possible mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. as compelling as possible for whomever is subjected to them. <laughs> you know? Um, I want to be mindful of time. Um, but I also... Well, I'll have two more questions. Um, there is, like, a commonality in all of your pieces uh, that... I feel like all of your works deliberately celebrate all types of people, particularly those that have not been traditionally seen in our stories or on our stages. Um, And then with that also shows like the full range of blackness Mm -hmm. that goes across all ranges of class, all ranges of sexuality, all ranges, um, which is just something that I personally am like cheerleading (laughs) showing you know because one of the things that we get to do as theater makers is to bring new people into stories and into worlds where they might not be otherwise Mm -hmm. um and to not always be telling like sad black stories and to not always have you know oppressed characters or they are maybe in a different way but i'm i'm curious what that drive is i'm curious uh where that root is for you I, i i mean the obvious answer is like you live in America and you can look around and see that this is, but, but not, but everyone can look around and do that. Not everyone chooses to write that. And so I'm, I'm curious if you, uh, I'm sure you're aware of it. I'm, I'm curious if it's an active choice in each piece. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm really just trying to, I, I feel like, you know, I have my little tool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my little, my tiny tool, right? And I'm, like, chipping away at a mountain of racism, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And it's, 
I just, I'm just trying to come at it from whatever angle. Maybe I'll have better luck over here. This part seems too hard. This I'll mm -hmm. go over here and <laughs> mm -hmm. and chisel away at this little bit right here, and maybe I can, maybe I can make a dent. You know, like so. All right, that play about you know. Um, that play in which I like explicitly addressed, you know, the 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 racism of white women in this country, right? For mm -hmm. example, like, all right, maybe that didn't quite land with everyone. So instead, now I'm gonna try this other thing, and instead of focusing on any kind of white people, I'm gonna write this play that I don't have not like not a not a single white person in it. And I'm just going to show you these black people being humans, mm -hmm. um, not sad humans, not oppressed humans, not humans in relation to white people, you know, mm -hmm. like just mm -hmm. just being just being right and um, living their lives. And and you you will relate, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because it if you only get one kind of narrative about a particular race of people you're only going to be able to relate to that group in that way so there are like entire swaths of, of like white folks who can only relate to black people as charity cases mm -hmm. or victims mm -hmm. or like to them like we're only as good as our suffering mm. and that feels in a weird way, just as dehumanizing as just flat-out racism, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, so it yeah. Is, Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to write racism. this play that'll have you relating to us as humans, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then I'll get back to torturing the white people, <laughs> you know, um, showing them the error of their ways. And then I'm just like, just for the fuck of it, I'm just, I'm gonna go over there and write about some Asian chicks, you know, mm -hmm. who are just trying to, you know, actually my grandmother's Japanese. People don't know this about me, but, <laughs> but like, but um, I don't just do one yeah. thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, so even like genre stuff, the wedding gift was like vaguely sci-fi, right? Mm -hmm. Whitelisted is horror, <laughs> revenge yes, yes. horror, right? I've done straight drama. I've tried a comedy or two, you know. Um, oh, Lord, kids musical. God help me. <laughs> I've written, like, a couple of kids musicals. You know, so I'll just come at it however I can and use my little tool to chip away at the mountain. Mm -hmm. And I just want to celebrate the the representation. I, and I, I say that earnestly, that I'm not sure that uh, there is another contemporary playwright right now who's showing the breadth of blackness that I think you show in your plays. And and I mean that across age, across gender, across sexuality, particularly across class, um, mm. that uh, it kind of doesn't really matter which of your plays you pull off the shelf. There's going to be something in it that subverts some expectation from some of your audience. And I'll I, take that. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just want to take a minute to celebrate that because I think it is really special. Uh, and I think that you are singular in that. So. Oh, thank yeah. you. Um, so I'm clearly going to, uh, you're clearly canonical in my book. I teach you in my classes and uh, my students know you. They love reading your stage directions. It's and, just because of nice. And we'll say, oh, I'll play Chisa. <laughs> when they, when it's like, who's going to read the narration? <laughs> 
I get to be a character. <laughs> like, yes. I'll, I'll be Chisa. All right. Here we I'll go. be Chisa. <laughs> There's one question, though, that I'll end with that I ask of everyone. Um, there's an ongoing debate about what should be in the capital B, capital C, Black canon. But I'm wondering if um, there is a particular play that you think, above and beyond all others, belongs in the Black canon. I mean, I, I think I already, I mean, Intimate Apparel is just... <laughs> I like, that would be your guess. <laughs> it just... It's just the perfect play. It's just perfect. It's perfect. It's a really great play. It is. Uh, Chisa, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your, your time and your energy and your <laughs> patience. And um, and also just for sharing your truth and your artistry. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for, you know, thinking I'm interesting enough to... <laughs> to like. <laughs> That was our interview with the incomparable human and playwright, Chisa Hutchinson. You can find a link to some of Chisa's plays and a link to information about Whitelisted at the Contemporary American Theatre Festival on our website at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. This is the Black Theatre History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and edited by Jeremiah Turner. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin which can be purchased via any platform where excellent music is sold. The Black Theatre History Podcast is sponsored in part by the Shepherd University Foundation. Information about podcast sponsorship and episode commissions is available on our website. Make sure to subscribe to the Black Theatre History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, and other streaming services where it can be found. And please leave us a review. Your feedback will help us get the podcast in front of other folks who don't yet know about us. The Black Theatre History Podcast is now also distributed by Broadway On Demand. Our podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please feel free to use this material accordingly. Credit should be recognized as Black Theatre History Podcast. Educators who wish to use the podcast in their classes can link directly to episodes at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. Theatre is spelled with an R-E. Thank you to all of you, our listeners, and a special thank you to my friends and colleagues at the Black Theatre Network and the Contemporary American Theatre Festival. We're all in this together, friends, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.